the book of John. Uh, we took a week off for Easter, and now we are going to be coming back. And this week we're going to be talking about a guy who had an encounter with Jesus that was kind of confusing. Jesus says some things that are a little strange, uh, one of them being that he says you must be born again. And before we get into this, um, I just want to acknowledge that for some of you, that phrase born again might mean something totally different than what this passage is going to be talking about. Um, I'm not sure how this happened, what the history of it is, but there is a group of people that people associate with like born again Christians, and it tends to be the like super hypocritical, fire and brimstone, um, like militant, cultish, those types of people that we think of when we hear that word. Um, and the really ironic thing about this passage is that Jesus is going to be saying things that directly contradict that way of living. So I just wanted to acknowledge that that might be something you're thinking about. And just to kind of uh, put that aside while we look at this passage and see what Jesus really has to say about being born again. So because we took a week off, I just want to take a reminder of where we've been in the book of John. We are only in chapter three. So if you're just joining us, you are not far behind. You haven't missed a whole lot yet. Um, but what you have missed is that uh, Jesus has started to kind of come on the scene. He started to perform some miracles or, as John calls them, signs. And he went to the temple and he got really angry, right? Joel talked about that a couple weeks ago. And the end of chapter 2, it ends uh, like this. I'm just going to read the last couple of verses of chapter 2. It says, Now while he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Kind of a little bit cryptic. Uh, you're kind of like, okay, so is Jesus like a mind reader? How exactly does this work? Um, but we're going to see it play out a little bit in this interaction that he has with Nicodemus. So keep that in mind, this idea that Jesus knew what was in each person. All right, so jumping in, John chapter 3. What I'm going to do, since it's a short section, I'm going to read a verse or two at a time and then kind of make some observations about what's happening and then kind of work our way through it that way. So we're going to start with the first couple verses, uh, John 3, 1 and 2. Now there is a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Okay, so a couple things to note. He comes at night, which people have kind of, spent a lot of time speculating, like, what exactly does that mean? Uh, was he embarrassed and he didn't want other people to know he was going to go talk to Jesus? Uh, that could definitely be a part of it. I think as we see in the book of John, we're also going to see that there's a lot of themes of like light versus dark. And the darkness usually just means spiritual ignorance, right? He just doesn't get what Jesus is doing. He's not quite on board with things yet. So he comes at night and then you notice that he doesn't really ask Jesus a question. He just kind of makes a statement. And you're like, okay, so, you know, he says, I know that you're, it seems like you've got a lot of power, right? It seems like you must be a teacher of God. And then he just kind of trails off, right? He's kind of like, but, but are you more than that? What, who are you, right? Tell me more about what's really going on. So we're going to continue on in verse three. Uh, Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
Okay, so not exactly what Nicodemus was asking, even though he wasn't asking a question. Uh, Jesus responds with something a little bit strange. He says, you must be born again to see the kingdom. So that word born there just means it's like generation. So like the word we think of like regeneration, it's just like that. Um, And then it says that you must be born again, or you can also translate it as from above. So I think Jesus is going to do a little play on words here. So keep that in mind. Um, But Nicodemus clearly thinks Jesus is saying you must be born again a second time. So he says, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, we don't really get a whole lot of what Nicodemus thinks or feels in this. You just kind of see what he does. So it's possible that he's just really, really confused about what Jesus is saying. It's also possible he's being a little bit snarky here, like, okay, Jesus, like, how am I supposed to do that? That seems crazy. Uh, But either way, we're going to see that Jesus answers in verse 5, and he says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Okay, water, that's strange. Um, You know, like you're thinking, were water births as popular back then as they are now? Uh, okay, water birth, you know, is it like water, your water breaking, <laughs> right? You're kind of like, okay, where is this going here? Um, and a lot of people, a lot of Christians, if you're well-versed in um, the Bible or just kind of Christian tradition, you might think like, oh, water, that must be baptism, right? Because that's usually how we um, connect baptism as we talk about water. And while it's not a bad guess to make, uh, I don't actually think that's what Jesus is talking about here because there's not any mention of baptism up until this point. And while we've already heard about John's baptism, we're not really sure if Nicodemus even really knows John was doing that or what that looked like. Uh, So I think the real key to figure out what exactly is Jesus talking about comes later in the passage in a verse that Joel's going to cover next week, but I'll just read it for you. In verse 10, Jesus kind of levels an accusation at, at Nicodemus of like, come on, you don't get this? He says, you're Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? So why would he say that? Why would he point to the fact that Nicodemus was well-versed in the Old Testament, right? He would have been like Old Testament professor status. He knew all of it, like, and again, they, they had a way better memory than we did, right? <laughs> like, they weren't distracted every five seconds by their phones, so they could actually hold large pieces of things in their head. Um, Nicodemus would have known the Old Testament. He would have been an expert in it. So Jesus seems to be kind of saying like, hey, I'm making a reference to an Old Testament thing and you should be picking up on it. So what what is he talking about? I think the best answer uh, comes from Ezekiel 36. So Ezekiel was a prophet in the Old Testament and he came with a lot of messages uh, from God to the people of God, to Israel. And one of those, a lot of the messages had to do with saying, hey, you need to repent, right? You need to turn from these idols that you were worshiping. They're actually worshiping like physical idols. He's like, you, you got to get rid of all of that. And you've got to turn and you have to follow me, right? I am the true God and you should be following me. And so he gives a lot of these messages. And then he gives some really encouraging, comforting messages uh, like Ezekiel 36. So I'm going to read these verses. They should be up on the screen for you. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. All right. 
So we've got this water idea, and here water seems to have to do more with cleansing, right? With repenting from something, uh, not necessarily with anything else. So you see that this, there's this idea of water and then the idea of spirit, which are the two things that Jesus is linking. So how does Nicodemus miss this, right? If he is supposed to be the Old Testament professor, how does this reference just go straight over his head? Well, D.A. Carson, who's a, a guy who um, is also very smart in all of these things, wrote a commentary on John, and he said, it appears that Nicodemus had not thought of the Old Testament passages this way. If he was like some other Pharisees, he was too confident of the quality of his own obedience to think he needed much repentance, let alone to have his heart transformed to be born again. So Nicodemus was so focused on his self and on what he was doing, his obedience, his morality, um, what you know, like that he was doing pretty well, that he had no concept that he would need repentance, right? He thought, this passage wouldn't apply to me. Why would Jesus apply this? Like, repentance is just so far from his mind that he just didn't even think that it would have anything to do with him. So hold on to that, because we're going to come back to that in the application for sure. But let's keep moving through the passage. Uh, in verse 6, it says, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So here, Jesus is just kind of trying to explain his thought process, and he's using some logical things to kind of get there, right? So here he's saying, like give birth, gives birth to like, right? So like an elephant can't give birth to a cat. Uh, an elephant gives birth to an elephant. So he's saying flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit, right? That's just how it works. And a lot of times when you hear the word flesh in the New Testament, um, people immediately jump to like sinful nature, right? Who we are, how our, you know, bodies are, um, how we're all broken, how we're all sinful, and while, again, I don't think that's a wrong jump to make, I think here Jesus is really more just trying to make the distinction of like you, like earthly birth, human birth gives birth to humans, right? But spiritual birth gives birth to spiritual people, and there's a distinction. And for people in the New Testament time period, there was a really big distinction between humanity and God. And so I think he's just drawing on that distinction and saying flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Okay, so going on in verse 7, he says, you should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Okay, so again, he's giving a logical uh, answer here, and this time he's using a comparison. So he's saying um, that this wind is similar to people who are born of the Spirit. So in the Greek... The word for wind and spirit are actually the same. So it's a word that's pronounced pneuma, um, but you can use it for either word, uh, either meaning of the word. So again, Jesus is doing a little play on words here again. And so he's basically just saying, right, the wind blows. We don't understand it. Uh, we don't know where it comes from, or at least they didn't in this time period. I don't because I am not scientific. Um, but we don't understand it. We can't control it in a lot of ways. And yet we can still feel its effects, right? You can see the trees swaying. You can feel it on your face. Um, you can hear it if it's whistling or if you've got wind chimes, whatever it is. So you can't understand how it works or where it came from, but you still can feel its effects. And he's saying that people who are born of the Spirit are similar, right? You don't actually know how they have been born by the Spirit or, or how it works, but you can see the effects, right? Someone who is born of the Spirit should live differently enough that you can see how it works out. Okay, 
So now we've gotten through the passage. Um, I want to talk about application. I really want to dig into some of this stuff. So my first point of application is that we need to realize you need the king in order to see the kingdom. So Jesus says you have to be born again to see the kingdom. And then he also says later you need to be born again to enter the kingdom. But Nicodemus, it seems like, there's something that's holding him back from fully understanding Jesus or fully accepting him, right? I told you to keep in mind that uh, end of chapter 2 where he talks about um, Jesus knowing what was in the heart of every person. We don't really get much of a backstory on Nicodemus, but it seems like there's something in his heart that makes him unwilling to accept Jesus. He wants to see the kingdom, right? He wants to be a part of that clearly in the fact that he's coming to Jesus, that he's asking about his power and his teaching, uh, but he doesn't really think he needs the king, right? He thinks he's got it figured out on his own. He, he's doing a pretty good job. He feels like you know he's living life the best he can. He's obedient. He's moral. Uh, he really, in a sense, is kind of the king of his own life, right? He's saying, I've figured it out. I know what I need to do, and I'm going to go do it. And that's going to help me get to the kingdom, right? I, I know what it is. You know, maybe Jesus can just help me a little bit. That's why I'm going to come ask these questions of him. But ultimately, I got this figured out. I can do it on my own. But Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom. Not let alone enter it, but you can't even see it unless you're born again. And you can't be born again without the king. You can't enter the kingdom. You can't see the kingdom without the king. And I think a lot of times when we read the New Testament and we read the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, we're like, wow, they're really dumb, <laughs> right? Like these questions that they ask, these things that they do, they're just like totally missing it, right? You kind of read it and you're like, oh, great, here's another Pharisee, doesn't know what he's doing. But when we do that, the ironic thing is that we're actually acting just like Nicodemus. We're acting as if we know better. We don't need to be told to repent. We don't need anything uh, outside of ourselves. We've got to figure it out on our own. And those people, wow, they're so dumb that they can't figure it out. We all tend to think that we don't need the king to see the kingdom. I think whether we're church people or not, we fall into this trap, right? I'm going to give a couple examples of, of things that you might think um, in your daily life that would, would indicate that you're living life as someone who doesn't think they need the king, right? So whether you're a church person or not, you might think, I know what my goal in life is. I know what I want. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be well-liked. I'm going to be helpful, whatever it is. And I'm just going to go get it. And I can do it on my own. And I don't need anybody's help. Uh, or maybe I just need a little bit of help from, you know, Jesus or someone. Maybe they can just give me that boost I need to figure it out. But ultimately, I kind of know what I'm doing. Or maybe if you're a church person, you might be thinking things like, you know, I've read the Bible before. I know what's in it. I don't really need to read it anymore because I already know it, right? Think again. Think about Nicodemus, right? He read the Bible. He knew the Bible, and it's still, he missed the point, right? He misses those points of Jesus. I think there's a lot of ways we can think that still, right? Like, I've heard the truth of the gospel. I don't need to hear it again. You know, I don't really think about my sin. I used to sin, you know. I used to have some issues. I've worked through them. I'm pretty good now. I don't really need to think about that. But when we do that, we're in danger of missing what Jesus really has for us. We're in danger of missing the kingdom because we're trying to be the king on our own. And really, we need to turn to Jesus and rely on him. So how does it work then, right? Because Jesus says you need to be born again. And I'm saying you don't need to do anything, right? Like it's all Jesus who does it. So how does that tension play out? And I think if you think about a, a real birth, a human birth, it kind of makes sense that Jesus would choose this analogy because 
babies don't actually contribute anything to their own birth, right? Like they don't do anything um, other than grow, I guess, that really helps them be born. <laughs> They're not the ones doing the work. But there is somebody who has to do a lot of work. Now, I've never given birth myself, but I know many people who have. And from what I hear, it's a lot of work, right? They call it labor for a reason. <laughs> uh, it's work. It's painful. Uh, it's kind of similar to suffering in a way, right? In order to bring this new baby, this new life into the world. And that's the same for us to be born again spiritually, right? We do nothing to contribute on our own, and yet Jesus does all the work for us. We just celebrated Good Friday last week uh, and remembered Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for us. He goes through the work. He lived the perfect life for us, and then he deals with the pain and the suffering and separation from God for us on the cross. He is the one who does the work so that we can have new life and be brought into this new family of God. So how do you be born again? You look to Jesus. And this passage is going to get into that more. Uh, Joel's going to talk more about it next week, about you know what it means to look to Jesus, how we do that, um, and why it matters. But just to remember that this is something that we, this new life that we get is from Jesus, the King, right? We need the King in order to see the kingdom. Okay, my second point of application uh, is that we need to embrace our new family identity. So the idea of being born again, right? When you're born, you're born into a family, typically. Uh, and every family is different. Every family has different ideas, identities, ways of doing things. If you've ever lived with anyone other than your family of origin, you've probably experienced this. Uh, whether it's things like, oh, this person puts things away in a, in a different place than I would, or, oh man, I remember in college, we had a long debate over whether you should pre-rinse your dishes when you put them in the dishwasher or not. Uh, it was this whole thing. And one of my roommates was, her dad worked for 3M, and so she was like, no, he makes those little like dishwashing packets, and like they are made so that you don't need to pre-rinse them. It was the whole thing. I don't know if that's true. We've got a lot of people here who work at 3M, so I don't think any of you work with the, that type of product. But if you can confirm or deny in the comments, that would be great. Uh, but either way, right, you understand that every family is different. They have a different identity, a unique way of doing things. And I think these, this is what Jesus is talking about when he makes that analogy with the wind and the spirit. Because when you join the family of God through new birth, you take on a different identity. You're not different physically, right? You still have the same hair, same basic personality, same interests. But inwardly, belief in Jesus should change you. It should change you, and that should reflect in your outward actions, in the way that you, um, the way that other people can see you. So just like the wind, you don't understand where it's coming from, but you see the effects. And I think that one of the biggest things at the heart of that new change is that we have a new identity. And when I say identity, I mean how you define yourself, or what you measure yourself against in terms of like, are you successful? Are you worth something, right? This is what how you think about yourself is your identity. And I think if we look at Nicodemus for an example, you see that his identity seems to really be wrapped up in like how well he's doing. Um, you know, is he doing it right? And how other people might perceive him, right? If he really did come to Jesus at night because he was uh, embarrassed, like that shows that he, he cared a lot about how other people perceived him. 
And sometimes we don't always notice like what it is that we're doing or how, you know, what it is we're putting our identity in until it's taken away from us. And I've really been reflecting on that during this quarantine because there have been a lot of things that have been taken away from us and it kind of makes us pause and think for a little bit, right? Maybe you're someone who loves to be productive and when you're productive, that's when you feel like the most confident about yourself or you feel like that's like your worth is in how productive you can be. Well, quarantine makes that a lot harder, right? How many of you had all these ideas of things you were going to do once you heard about the stay-at-home order? You're like, I'm going to get this house project done. I'm going to take up this new hobby. I'm going to do all these things. And then you realize, like, there's just not the time or you don't feel up for it or it's just this weird thing and it just isn't working, right? So your productivity or your ideas of what you were going to do to be successful come down. I think similarly, like a lot of us put our identity and our um, worth in how we're doing at work. Uh, or maybe if you're a parent or a stay-at-home parent, your job is taking care of your kids. And quarantine has really messed with a lot of that too, right? You know, your work is different. Maybe you got laid off or you're furloughed, so you can't really work right now. Um, or parenting, it's hard right now, right? You don't get a break. You have to do it all the time. So you might be feeling like, oh, I'm just not measuring up. I'm just not doing enough. I'm not you might be feeling kind of bad about yourself. Maybe you're just feeling in a funk or feeling off. And I think a lot of times it's because we're putting our identity in other things. But in the family of God, you don't have to do that, right? You don't have to, to feel like you're not enough or you're not measuring up or uh, you're a failure in any way because when you do, you can look to Christ who measured up for us, right? He lived that perfect life. He did all the things he was supposed to and he took all of our sin and all of our failures on the cross. And once you get that in your head, right, once you repeat that to yourself enough and hear it from other people, hopefully there's some kind of change that starts to happen in you. Uh, I know this happened to me. When I first started to, when this first started to really click for me, I had people who would say things like, oh, wow, you just really seem like more confident in yourself. Or, you know, you're really coming out of your shell. Someone <laughs> told me that I was really blossoming, which was very embarrassing. Uh, please don't say that to people. <laughs> it's a very strange thing. Um, but right, it's like that wind analogy. There's something internally that changes and outwardly people can see that. You have that new identity secure in Christ and that should change you. Uh, and it's not anything, like I said, there's nothing we can do to earn it. You just have to keep reminding yourselves and reminding the people around you that our identity isn't in whatever else is around us, but it's in Christ. And when that happens, when your identity shifts, other things kind of shift with it. So one of those other things is your priorities, right? Because you're not focusing on yourself so much. You're not so thinking about like, oh my gosh, what do people think of me? Am I doing enough? Am I good enough? Um, I got to get all these things done. I got to, you know, advance at work. You're, you're, some of those things are lifted. And so you have the bandwidth to focus on other people, right? You have the bandwidth to see other things around you that maybe you can step into and be a light in. And Notice that I keep saying family identity, right? I'm not saying your personal identity because honestly, it's not just about you and your unique identity anymore. It's about the family of God. It's about being a part of the mission uh, that centers around Jesus and people coming to know him and the world being made new through him. And so there's just a, a shift, right? A change. You're less focused on yourself and you're more focused on what God is doing in the world and how you can be a part of it. Uh, and being born into the family of God means that your whole life is reoriented around Jesus, right? It's a big shift. And some of you might be sitting here thinking like, hey, I've made that change. I've learned these things. And yet I don't really feel like things are changing anymore, right? I kind of feel a little bit 
lost in this. Maybe I experienced it before and I'm not anymore. Uh, but I want you to remember that this is a gradual process, right? It's not a one and done. You have to continue reminding yourself of this uh, your whole life. And one of the cool things with Nicodemus, I just want to close with this, is that um, we don't really get to see his reaction to Jesus' exchange with him, right? Jesus tells him all this stuff, and then the story moves on. So we don't really know what happens. But we do see Nicodemus later. I'm going to give a couple of spoilers in the book of John. So in chapter 7, Nicodemus briefly pops up, and he has this moment where he questions some of the actions of the Pharisees around him. They're really like, hard on Jesus and they're like, man, we gotta, you know, we gotta get this guy, take this guy down. We gotta accuse him. And, and Nicodemus kind of pauses and says like, wait, 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 are we sure? Are we sure this is the right move? So you see, there's some kind of gradual shift happening in him um, that we don't understand. He probably doesn't even understand, but there's an outward change happening in him. And then finally, when we get to the crucifixion, um, you have this beautiful moment where Nicodemus shows up as one of the people who comes to help bury Jesus. And this is really significant because all of these people have just come together to come around Jesus and say, we need to kill this man, right? We need to get rid of him. He is like the worst. And Nicodemus used to be a part of that group of people. And in this moment, he shows up to bury Jesus. He risks everything, right? He puts his reputation on the line. He puts um, just all of what he had been doing, basically his whole life, on the line to say, no, I'm going to follow Jesus instead. And I'm going to come and I'm going to help bury him. I'm going to bring the embalming spices needed to, uh, to, put, to bury him. So you just see this progression um, of this gradual shift that happens in Jesus through the Spirit, through being made new uh, in God. So, Remember this week, I just want you to be reflecting on, are there times where you're trying to maybe be the king or queen of your own life, um, where you really need to let Jesus be the king? And then how can you embrace that new family identity uh, together? And if you're interested in learning more about this, if you're maybe new and you're just checking this out and you're not even really sure about Jesus yet or about Christianity, we would love to connect with you further, whether it's over a phone call or a text or Zoom. Um, we would love to just connect with you and help you kind of continue to explore who Jesus is and what that means for you. So if you are interested in talking with us more, uh, we've got a connection card that you can fill out. Just give us your name and whatever info you feel comfortable giving us. Um, and then maybe in the comments or the prayer request section, just write, hey, I want to I learn more about Jesus or whatever it is that you're interested in. We'd love to connect further with you in that. All right, so we are going to move to Q&A if there are questions, okay? And then after that, we are going to do communion, so. Okay, our first question. <laughs> How about now? Oh, wait, I got to figure it out. Okay, here we go. I if you can't hear, Joel's trying to test the microphone right now. I'm not sure now. if you can hear him. Okay, great. Yeah. No, it's not Zach's fault. Don't worry. It's, <laughs> it's mine. Um <laughs> Okay, so the first question comes from Bailey, and Bailey asks, can being born again and repenting come separately, or do they usually come hand in hand? That's a really good question, um, and if you really want to get into, like, the nitty-gritty of it, there's kind of this, like, uh, like I was saying, like, Jesus is the one, God is the one who does the work in us um, that helps us lead towards a place where we can repent. So in some places, in some way, it's this weird thing where God works in us, which maybe you could call being born again, um, and that leads us to repent, right? It's kind of this thing they work together. Um, 
And so I'm not quite sure if that answers your question exactly, but I think they kind of work together and God is, is the one who's like doing the work to make us get to that point who works in our heart. Uh, but I do think that as I was saying with Nicodemus, sometimes it can be a gradual process until it fully clicks, right? So like sometimes people can experience that and they're like, hey, wow, I'm going to repent. But they're still figuring out like, what exactly does that mean? And how do I follow through on that? And so it might look different as time goes on. And I honestly think Nicodemus is a great example of that, right? Because clearly he understood some of what Jesus was saying, but it didn't fully like connect and he maybe didn't fully repent um, until later on. So it's a mysterious process (laughs) is kind of my answer. So one other question, this comes from, uh, I think it's Thomas. um, And he, he says, good question, Bailey. So good, good question, Bailey. But he says, as a follow-up, what constitutes being born again? What about those who know, act, and want to strive to be born again as Christians, but haven't really internalized it yet? So those who are kind of act first and maybe believe second kind of in their approach. Yeah, that is a good question. I mean, again, I, I would think that like there's some... Again, Nicodemus is a great test case of this because he clearly is interested. He wants to know. He wants to follow Jesus, but he can't. There's something holding him back, and I think that is that idea that he thinks he can do it on his own. And I would say the people who are still acting um, to try and kind of do it on their own are maybe like they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to to move towards Jesus. But I would say even that, I, my guess is that God's already working in their heart as they're doing that. So. I'm not entirely sure how to answer it because I think it is a mysterious process. And honestly, I think a lot of the times we don't actually know because we're looking at it from the outside and we don't know what's going on in their heart. So maybe in their heart, they really are wrestling with those things, um, but we can't always see it or understand how it all works together. So these are really good questions, you guys. I think it's it's something for all of us to continue wrestling with. 